You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible and you want to, I'm going to be reading initially from three different places, so I'll give you a moment to flip to them if you want to catch up with me on that. Matthew 10, we're going to be verses 37 through 39. It's Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. It's Matthew 16, 24 and 25. And then Luke 14, 25 through 27. So it's Matthew 10, Matthew 16, and Luke 14. Uh, if you just want to grab those three spots, then you can catch up with the verses when I read them in just a moment. Uh, while you're turning and getting prepared for that, I'm just going to go ahead and make an executive decision. So we will be at the mobile home park at 5.30 setting up, and the event will take place from 6 to 7. Did I get a second? Motion carries. There we go. All right. So at the mobile home park there at that little pavilion area at 5.30 Friday night, and then the actual sign-up registration event, we will run from 6 to 7. I hope you can come and be a part of that. Uh, we did one uh, this past Friday night up at Hancock Pavilion. Got to meet some incredible families, incredible kids. Uh, got to sign a few of them up for VBS. But more than that, it was just being present in the community. And we're going to do more of that. And we're going to do more of that understanding that we go and we do that, not with an expectation or not with a looking at it and go, well, if we spend this much money on an event, we should get this much response. We're just going to go and do that because that's what God has called us to do. Y'all might be wishing I was back on vacation before this day's over. Because that's what he's called us to do. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Jesus says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And then Luke 14, 25 through 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Five different places in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke does Jesus use this terminology of taking up or bearing a cross. Um, the Matthew 16 passage is essentially repeated in Mark 8 and Luke 9, if you want to jot that down and read them. But essentially that same passage is retold in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, which is why I didn't read it. But five different times Jesus uses this terminology of taking up a cross, of denying oneself and following him. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is a paradox. A paradox, according to Webster's, is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. Uh, a simple example of that would be the simple phrase that you've probably heard before, less is more. And on the surface of that statement, it seems to be contradictory. How can less be more? But we understand that if we have less things to worry about and to take care of and to provide upkeep for and maintenance for, then we have more time to do things that we would enjoy. If we have less debt, then we have more money to be generous with in our world. And so on and so on. Less is more. And so the gospel of Christ is this paradox because Jesus speaks from the gospel perspective of eternal life. John 3.16, of course, probably the most well-known. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We would say that's the gospel message. Jesus speaks in other places in John 14, 19 of actively living because of him. He says to his disciples there and to us, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And so the gospel message is this gospel message of life, of eternal life, of life here on earth, of abundant life. But yet... From those three passages that we just read, I just referenced in two other places as well, the paradox is that Jesus also speaks of our death. That to have life, we must die. Not dying for our sins. He has accomplished that, and only he can accomplish that. But to have life and have it abundantly with him and have life that, that means something in this world, we must die. And he puts it in this terminology of carrying a cross or bearing a cross. And it helps us. We, we really need to dig to understand what this terminology means, what this phrasing means. We've taken it and we've sort of adapted it in different ways and said the things like, well, if we have a, an illness or we have something wrong with our body or we have economic situations or social situations and stuff, we, in the midst of complaining about those things or talking about those things, we often say, I guess that's just my cross to bear. But that is not the intent of Jesus' words. No one in Jesus' day would hear, take up your cross or bear your cross and follow me and think, oh, this means I have a lifelong burden I have to carry. They would hear that statement and they would say, oh, somebody's about to die. Somebody's about to lose their life. And so what dies in this gospel message is me and you. Our wants, our desires, our goals, in as much as those things serve our kingdom, have to die. Now, it's possible for you and I to have desires and to have goals and to have dreams and, and have careers and all of those things, but they must be things that serve his kingdom. If you are a doctor, you must be a doctor to the glory of God. If you are a secretary, you must be a secretary to the glory of God. If you are a homemaker, if you are a farmer, whatever it is you may be, it must be that to the glory of God. And inasmuch as those things serve me and my kingdom, those things have to be put to death. And so I believe the gospel message can be summed up in this way. In order for us to live in Christ, we must die to ourselves. 
That is what the scripture teaches. So what does this mean? What does this mean to take up the cross and do this? Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this, uh, wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. I would encourage you to read it. It's a big book. It's a lengthy book, but it is a fabulous book. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who not only stood up against Hitler, but rallied the Christian church in Germany around him at a time when the majority of the Christian churches were leaning towards Hitler's teachings. And for that, Bonhoeffer paid with his life. But in this book, The Cost of Discipleship, he makes this statement. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which everyone must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. How do you and I die to self? How do we take up our cross and bear our cross and follow him? We die to the attachments of this world. Now, when we hear phrasing like that, what we tend to think, I believe, is this. Yeah, 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 all those other people and their worldly attachments. All those other people and their worldly sins. All those other people and their worldly guilt. We essentially turn into the Pharisee from the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector and say, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And yet if you remember that story, what Jesus says is the tax collector who acknowledges who he is is the one who goes home justified before Christ. Rarely, if ever, do we examine ourselves and wonder if we have worldly attachments that need to die. Even worldly attachments that show up as perhaps hope in worldly systems or in worldly ways of accomplishing things. Let me give you a very simple but I think powerful metaphor here today or example. In a few weeks, we're going to have business meeting. We're going to have a quarterly business meeting, and somebody's going to call it to order, and there's going to be a moderator, and there are going to be motions, and there's going to be times for committees and committees on committees and committees that need to be committees and whatever else we will do. And it's all going to go under this thing called Robert's Rules of Order. In 1863, a 25-year-old Army lieutenant named Henry Martin Robert was asked to preside over a meeting at First Baptist Church in New Bedford, Massachusetts. The meeting was chaos. Christian brothers, and I'm assuming sisters, talking over one another, blasting at one another for differences of opinions, And so he left that meeting utterly confused and disgusted and studied various global parliamentary procedures from other countries, other nations. He compiled a set of rules. He adapted from procedures that were currently being used in the United States House of Representatives at that time. And he published this thing called Robert's Rules of Order for not only churches but other organizations as well. And it was all because the church couldn't have a meeting without descending into chaos. That's what started it. He wrote, as part of that experience, one can scarcely have had much experience in deliberative meetings of Christians without realizing the best of men, having wills of their own, are liable to attempt to carry out their own views without paying sufficient respect to the rights of their opponents. Do you hear that, those words and those phrases? Men having wills of their own, carrying out their own views, not paying sufficient respect to the rights of their opponents. 
The answer to the chaos that he saw was not to call that church to repentance, which is what should have been done, but to look at worldly systems and construct a worldly system of governing and ruling so as not to have meetings descend into chaos. Why do I use that as an example? Because this is an example historically that now carries on some 159 years later of the church being as such that we apparently cannot meet without having to rely upon worldly systems to do so. Because we don't properly die to self. Listen again to those words he used. Men having wills of their own. When I die daily to myself and I live to Christ, it is not my will any longer, but it is his. Wanting to carry out their own views. When I die daily to myself and I live daily to Christ, it is not my view I'm carrying out, but it is his. Not respecting the rights of their opponents. When I die daily to myself and I live daily to Christ, no brother or sister in Christ is viewed as an opponent. But in just a few weeks, 159 years later, we'll hold a business meeting and we'll be governed by those same rules. You know how churches ought to conduct business? We ought to be gathering together more often to frequently and fervently pray. We ought to be gathering more than once a week to really get in and study God's word and and sharpen each other with God's word and not just simply be satisfied with being in a classroom or in a Sunday morning worship service and have somebody spilling it out to us. We ought to take seriously the command to go and teach and baptize and make disciples instead of wishing they would come here That is how the church ought to do business, folks. But rarely do we see it happen, do we? Because to do all of that, we have to die. And we are not people who naturally want to die. I'm not talking about physical death, although there are many who fear such a thing. I'm talking about this idea that Jesus puts forth in the Gospels of taking up a cross, of bearing a cross, and dying to myself. You dying to yourself. He says in those passages we read, if you don't hate your father and your mother and your sister and your brother and others, and and just, I want to clarify that. We don't have a lot of time to go that direction, but that, that hating there is not hating like you and I consider hating. It means to love less, that Jesus is supreme and reigns over even our earthly relationships. That if father or mother or brother or sister, anybody else stands in our way of our allegiance to him, he has allegiance over them. And to do that, we have to die. And if we're going to die, that means that we have to live to something else or really more importantly, for what the Bible says, live to someone else, not something 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, this is the way Paul writes it. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul in Galatians, to the church at Galatia, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. We die to self and we live through and in him. And in him, we no longer have my views. And in him, we no longer have my will. And in him, we no longer see brothers and sisters in Christ as opponents. We take up our cross and we follow him. So how does this practically work out in our lives? Two things I want to propose to you today. Number one, acknowledge it is never forced or coerced, but it is chosen. For what Jesus says is, if anyone would come after me. Jesus will not interrupt your life and force you or choose you to become, or coerce you to become a disciple. He will draw you. His Holy Spirit will do work around you. But you and I must respond to that work. You might say, well, wouldn't everybody want heaven? Well, many want heaven. Few want the cross. Many want to wear the cross, but few want to bear the cross. It is never forced or coerced upon us, but it is chosen by us. We have to want to be disciples. I'm going to slide back into my old ball coach days. When young men would come up to me and say, I, I, want, I want to move from ninth in the rotation to sixth in the rotation. I want to move from being the first man off the bench to, to start in the game. Or I want, to, I want to increase this part of my game. Or I want to improve this part of my game. And the response to them all the time, whether their skill level was way up here or way down here, was always the same. You've got to want to do it. And some of them had great skill levels. And never accomplished who they could have been because they didn't have a want to. In Christ, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God in each Christian's life, we have the greatest skill set of all. And yet many earthly will never achieve what God has desired for us as disciples because our want to isn't big enough. We have to want to be disciples. Across three churches that I've served in over 22 years, I've rarely had to schedule extra times of prayer or extra times of Bible study or extra times of mission. Why? Because I've rarely had people come to me and say, Preacher, I just don't think we're praying enough together as a body. Preacher, I just don't think we're gathering together as a, as a body of Christ and opening God's word enough together. I've had them complain about lots of other things. I've rarely had anybody come to me with that. Because we have fallen into the trap of being too content with being able to say, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? And saying, yes, I'll go to heaven. And we've fallen into the trap of being content with that to say, well, that somehow makes us a disciple of Christ. That is only a part of being a disciple of Christ. It is not only where you or I would go when we die, but it's how you and I will live on this earth. 
It's not forced. It's not coerced. You have to choose it. And then secondly, if we say yes to Jesus, it means we're saying no to everything else. The rich young ruler couldn't say no to his wealth, and he walked away sad. The priests and the rulers of the temple couldn't say no to their power and the authority, and they crucified Jesus, the author of life. Even the disciples had their moments, didn't they? Peter always had to have not only the first word, but the last word, presumably. James and John fought over who got to be in the positions of power. We all have our moments, but our moments have to be fewer and far between as we are dying to ourselves. And this is the challenge. For just as we are not people who naturally want to die, we are also not people who naturally want to say no to things. We think we have some kind of privilege in Jesus to have it all here on earth when really all we have of value on earth is Jesus. There's not one single thing any Christian brother or sister in Christ will take to heaven with them other than the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. There's nothing you own. There's nothing in your retirement fund. The only thing that goes with you is the Holy Spirit of God. But yet we don't want to say no to very much here on this earth. You say, well, we have, we have the ability to. We have the freedom to say yes to all these things. Yes, we do. And Paul, when writing to the Corinthian church in both 1 Corinthians 6 and chapter 10, so it tells me it must have been kind of important because he used it twice, said this thing, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. In Christ, in the freedom we have in Christ, absolutely you and I are free to say yes to anything and everything. But just because we are free to say yes to it doesn't mean it's helpful. Doesn't mean it's helpful to us, doesn't mean it's helpful to the mission. We have to learn to say no. We have to learn to not be so in love with the kingdom of this world and all that it allows and all that it affords and long instead for the kingdom that is to come. And we have to say no to equating earthly blessing and privilege with God's favor. When the first disciples and the early church did not see that as all, at all. They saw God's favor in one of my favorite passages from the book of Acts. When they have come out of the prison, they've been released and they've been beaten. It says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. They did not exit the prison and go, oh, why is God letting this happen to us? Oh, he promised we were going to have a better life. They exited the prison and said, oh, what a joy that we would be counted to suffer for Jesus. And then they went right back to the work of the kingdom. Why this message today? Because today we are going to have an opportunity to remember the cross of Christ. This cross was one that no one could bear but Jesus. Not a single man or woman alive in this room, out of this room, watching online, or who has ever lived or who ever will live, who was capable enough to go and fulfill the work on the cross that Jesus did. And so we're going to remember that great work today. But I want you to remember it in this sense. His cross leads to our cross. His death 
leads to our death, which ultimately leads to life in him. And so today when we pass this out in just a moment, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the Lord's Supper to examine ourselves, to take it wisely, he says. This is what we do before we take it every month. Today, if you take this, you're declaring that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not, not just that he has saved you and is your Savior, but you're declaring he's Lord. And if he's Lord, nothing and no one else is. He's not co-Lord. He's Lord. And so if you and I are going to take this today, the message is here today for us to be reminded that we are to take up that cross and follow him and die to ourself that we might live in him. And notice what he did not say in the scriptures. He did not say, take up your cross and follow me, and then after you follow me, you can set it aside. The phrasing of that take up your cross is the phrasing meaning it's continual. In Luke's response of that, actually in Luke 9.23, he says that Jesus said, take up your cross daily. It means every day when you and I awaken, every day when we draw our first breath knowingly and look out the day before us, our first response should be, what has to die in me today that I might live for you fully. And so before we take, we need to reflect. Before we remember, we need to respond. And so I give you three things to consider today in prayer. One, what is left in your life and in my life to be put to death? What's clinging to us? What's, what's holding on to us? Or what are, more importantly, maybe are we holding on to that needs to be put to death. Secondly, what's the next thing that needs to be nailed to your cross so that you can truly live for him? And then thirdly, what worldly attachment still clings to you and hinders your progress, hinders my progress as a disciple of Christ? Those are difficult questions. Those are not questions we typically like to answer because most of the time we don't like or that we don't like to ask, because most of the time we don't like the answer. But they're questions we must ask of ourselves. Before we remember his death, we must reflect. Before you take of this cup and take of this bread, you must decide. Am I going to daily bear my cross? Not as a burden, but as a joyful experience of being called a son or a daughter of God. No, I'm going to die to self and live for him. These things I hope we consider today. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.